0: welcome to the lead the new lines magazine podcast i'm amy ferris rotman and this is a podcast where we delve into the biggest ideas events and personalities from around the world russia's full-scale invasion of ukraine shows no signs of abating since the invasion began in february 2022 we've seen the rise of the so-called z generation or z generation for the americans out there They are named for the Z symbol that has become emblematic of the war following its adoption by the Russian invaders. This generation are internet savvy and should in theory be more resistant to state propaganda, but the opposite has happened. They're motivated by patriotism, the successful result of an education campaign escalated by the Kremlin in recent years to secure their loyalty and shape their ideological outlook. I'm joined today by Dr. Ian Garner, an historian and analyst of Russian war propaganda. He is the author of Stalingrad Lives: Stories of Combat and Survival and the forthcoming Z Generation: Into the Heart of Russia's Fascist Youth. Ian, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Great. So I definitely want to speak to you about this new Z generation, but I think we should rewind just a little bit and look at the propaganda that's used in Russia today these messages of Russian greatness and superiority. And I'd like to know how this compares to the patriotism and official messaging that the Soviet Union used. Um, It does feel like we've come a bit full circle in late Putinism with the past. Would you say that's an accurate description?
1: I think there's a really good comparison to be made here between the kind of symbolism at least that the Soviet Union was using and the symbolism that the state is using today but today we also see the addition of a sort of ragtag cocktail of symbolism from previous eras as well so the czarist era the return of folk Mm -hmm. mythical religious heroes who weren't Uh, officially approved of in the Soviet Union, even if occasionally they were used in times when the Kremlin needed to rally the Soviet people to its cause. And so, you know, you'll see the Tsarist flag alongside the Z symbol, alongside the Soviet flag, alongside the modern Russian flag. There is an inherent contradiction in the way this symbolism is used. But what's more interesting to me is that when you look at the messaging, the messaging is actually fairly consistent between the Tsarist periods, the Soviet periods, and today. Underlying everything that we see about the way that the Russian state sells its mission itself, and especially its foreign policy to the public, is this overarching narrative, and it's a mythological narrative, of death and rebirth, of utopias created through sacrifice and martyrdom, and of Russia's supposedly holy mission to be at the vanguard of history. And of course, that's language I'm borrowing from Lenin, right, the idea of the vanguard of history. And that Russia is going to somehow, through war, through destruction, through sacrificing its own people, lead the world into some future stage of its development. And of course, today, that's when you hear Putin talking about the the new multipolar world order that Russia is going to sweep away the globalization and the influence of America. This is the same story that Russia was telling back in 1812 about its role in defeating Napoleon back in the 15th century about its mission to, to fight off both the Catholic Church and Muslim invaders of Constantinople. It's a story that just keeps coming up throughout Russian history, and it's a story that is effective. Today it's just dressed up in different colors and different symbols
0: That's so interesting that that it's that it's gone on for so long and that it's it's been changed in that way um simply in super superficial level if If the messaging has been so consistent um since sarus times, w- I mean, is what we're seeing then today, was it inevitable?
1: I'm really wary of giving into the idea of historical determinism about any country, but in particular about Russia, which is a country that is often painted in deterministic terms in the Western media and by Western commentators. The idea that somehow Russia is innately something, that Russia is fated to be a particular way, and Russian propagandists and their academic fellow travelers, of course, like to like to make it seem like the case that today's battle, today's war in Ukraine is something that it had to do, that it had no choice, that it's sort of fallen into the war because it has to defend itself constantly against attacks from the outside. But of course, this is not true. There's no such thing as historical determinism. History is contingent. And in the case of today's Russia, at least, history and the myths of the past have been very carefully constructed by the state. And Putin, you know, you can you can go back, look at the first things that he was doing when he became president. It was aligning himself with World War II. It was going to parades on mm-hmm. Red Square, going to Victory Day, painting himself as this sort of leader in the the church, the cult of the war, which is a quasi religious idea. And of course, the memory of World War II is very much inflected in Russia with these ideas of sacrifice and rebirth. And since then, that messaging has only got stronger and stronger and stronger. This is not something that had to be the case. Russia could have, even under Putin in the early days, chosen a different path, chosen a liberal path, chosen to move towards the West, but the state decided not to. And I'm I'm convinced that the state decided very early on that it would never agree to doing so.
0: So in a way, what you're saying is the world, the West, should have expected something like this to happen, that, this, that war is the natural tra- trajectory of a country which behaves in this way, which is constantly talking about having to defend itself and, and restore its greatness against outside threats.
1: Certainly, yes. I mean, the, the one soviet myth that never really died in the 90s when everything exploded and meaning fell apart the things that people had lived by the things that people expected in the world were suddenly no longer true and that happened very very quickly if you're interested in a book about it there is a great book by uh, a scholar called alexey yurchak called i think it's called everything was forever until it was no more or some variation of that mm. about the speed at which things fell apart nobody quite expected it even they, though they knew it was happening but in the 1990s you know we had no more soviet union no more russia as the victor of history and yet the one thing that people consistently identified with even when support for liberalism and democracy at its it, very highest in the early 90s was the cult of World War II? Was the myth of the sacrifice of World War II that Russia, not the Soviet Union, incidentally, this is the way that it's, uh, the, the way that it's painted, that Russia saved the world in 1945, that it was not America, that Russia sacrificed 25 or 27 million people, depending on who you ask, to save the world, and that was that, left very fertile pickings for the state and the state built on that. And so when when Putin entered power, you can look back to his earliest speeches and the, the narrative time and again is that we will fight the battle again. We will have to fight this battle because, and this is what he says, but not what I believe, Russia is fated to constantly be engaged in this kind of war. And thus for the last 22 and a bit years, Putin has been looking for ways to fight wars, whether it's in Chechnya, whether it's wars at home against homosexuals and against other people that he would exclude from, and I'm sure we'll get onto this, what he defines as being a good Russian, and then against Ukraine in 2014 and again today.
0: I mean, a lot of what you've written about, and something which I found really interesting because um, because I related to it on a personal level, was about the fairy tale that um, that has existed in the last two decades under Putin in in modern Russia. And and it really struck a chord with me because I left Moscow at the end of 2019 um, for London, not knowing what would happen um, and if I'd be back and London's lack of a fairy tale was suddenly extremely stark. The difference was so stark. And I realised then more than I had ever before, just how much of a fake um, fairy tale land Moscow had become with its non-stop festivals and beautiful immaculate boulevards, permanently lit up trees, um, this sort of fake um, idyll of perfection that uh, Putin was trying to have projected. But um, it seems... It seems to have intensified in in recent years, uh, and it seems to have been extremely effective. Can you talk a little bit about that and what it has led to?
1: Of course. And I I point out in the book that the very first speech that Putin makes as acting president, as he was on 31st of December 1999, is his big New Year's Eve speech to the whole nation, which is a traditional thing in Russia. It's a bit like the Queen's speech that British people see. Mm. And he he says basically the 90s are over the bad times are over we're now going to begin a fairy tale fairy tales can come true that's the way that he announces himself as president to the nation and that's what he's consistently been promising ever since whether it is the fairy tale of russia's huge gdp growth in the 2000s that you know we're just all going to keep getting richer and wealthier we're going to enjoy the goodies of iPhones and laptops and trips abroad, education abroad, if you want it. You, you can have it all. So long as we keep being ready to fight. And of course, the violence never did go away, right? Even in the 2000s, the boom times, Russia was constantly fighting. It was fighting in for almost all of the 2000s. And then it was fighting in Georgia for a while. Increasingly, separating itself, isolating itself from the world, while at the same time domestically, we see this sort of pantomime performance of fairy tale being rolled out to the population And what the state did that was so canny. And this is where Vladislav Sorkov, Putin's so-called gray cardinal, his his main PR guy until relatively recently, this is where they really knew what they were doing because Surkov understood That you needed to seize the media that you could use the media to create the sense that in moscow at least the future was always being created it was always glittering it was always happening and the way i discuss this in the book is it's it's something like a fascist rally right that sort of glamour the excitement of seeing this happen but bolted onto modern media And thanks to the spread of modern media, always on television, always rolling satellite news and increasingly social media, which came to Russia, just like it came to the West in the mid to late 2000s. Anybody can log on and participate in those fascist rallies. You can watch them. You can watch the parades. You can watch that sort of glittering Moscow whenever you choose. You can share it. You can cut it up. You can recreate it yourself. You don't have to wait for that one moment of going to the cinema or participating in your local rally once a week or once a month, as you might have done back in the Soviet era or in other totalitarian regimes like under Hitler.
0: And fantasy, as as it often does, I mean, gives way to the mythical um, and the mythical means that reality gets erased. And that's, that's definitely something which I witnessed uh, living in Russia over years. Um, but I mean, could you talk a little bit about what happened, What's what has been happening in the last years in, in in terms of its embrace of fascism as a result of the fantasy? Sure. So I think
1: the big turning point moment for me is around about 2011, 2012, when Putin was preparing to return to the presidency, when, of course, in the, the performance of the election was significant in that you know there was never any doubt who was going to win the presidential election but this was a time when widespread protests were kicking off at home as a result of the financial crisis which left young russians feeling like that fairy tale future hadn't you know was was off the table for them as a result two of widespread and obvious cheating in elections on the part of the state, which young people were recording and sharing on their smartphones. And so the state was a little bit behind the curve in that regard. But also in Putin watching abroad, the Arab Spring, remembering the Orange Revolution in Ukraine in 2004, the Rose Revolution in Georgia, and of course, similar in Kyrgyzstan. Putin, having been spooked by the events of the Arab Spring and other revolutions, decides that he is very afraid that the same might occur at home Mm -hmm. and this is the moment where realities start to really fragment in Russia into and this is something cultivated by the state into an us and a them and the state pushes hard to create media networks and social media networks along with of course educational programs and youth groups and all sorts of similar things so that those who choose to cite themselves or recreate themselves into the us and there is the chance to recreate yourself even if you're an outsider in russia can live in this world in which fantasy becomes reality myth becomes reality can click and like and share and comment and reply on social media posts in which they're constantly telling other people in that bubble that this is true, despite all the evidence to the contrary that they might see, and in that sense, they sort of create a bulletproof reality where they can reject any facts that attempt to penetrate that bubble.
0: And in and in us versus them, the West, of course, is to blame for everything. Right? Um, that that that's what emerged and and russia emerges as as the best as as the 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 superior culture the superior country which is at war with all sorts of things with with religion values beliefs and i suppose that brings me to the next question which is which you had mentioned earlier which is in this in this fantasy this this complete alter reality that we're witnessing what does it even mean to be russian or a good russian in 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 this society
1: there are several ways to look at it but the most important is a series of very narrowed down characteristics if in the 2000s in russia you were allowed to with with limits more or less be who you wanted to be you could be a young gay russian in in a big city and you could go to a gay club and it wasn't something you would necessarily flout russia was regressive and conservative but it was something that you know you you could do with some with some caution now russians are told that to be russian is to be orthodox christian and of course a very uh twisted and blasphemous version of orthodox christianity because the church effectively is the state to be nationalistic and patriotic, to be loud about it, to be masculine and macho, and to adhere to so-called traditional family values. That is, not be associated with the queer community in any way, and not even be sympathetic to them. And most importantly of all, Russians are told that to be a good Russian, you have to be constantly, and this is what I think is so reminiscent of the fascistic movements of the 20th century. Russians are told that you have to remake yourself. You have to break apart your own psychology and put it back together. The battle begins not just you know, on, on the border of Russia where Ukrainians are battering down the doors and threatening to eat your children and crucify babies, as the propaganda would claim. The battle begins within by reinventing the self, And when I spoke to some people who'd fallen on the outside of this narrow form of identity, they told me that, you know, I I felt like I was fighting myself. I felt like I was breaking apart within. Right. And I just couldn't couldn't remake myself. That's where the that's where the state starts to root out the enemies within and it begins inside the mind.
0: I mean, your book is such a chilling portrait of this new generation. You detail all sorts of different people from different communities that we would not imagine, including from the LGBT community in Russia, who who get turned by this enormous propaganda machine. And I think that's something, well, this is what I want to ask you is, when a lot of people in the West think of the war in Ukraine and Russia's actions abroad, We often associate it very much with the old guard, the Soviet system, and obviously Putin lived and served the Soviet system, as did almost everyone in his government. Um, But is this a misperception? Should we have actually been paying attention to what the youth was up to? Or is it a combination of both?
1: It's certainly a combination of both. This is an old guard battle, and it's designed and led by the old guard but we have to recognize that there is no sense of inevitability about the younger generation, and I'll get to millennials in a second, about the younger generation somehow transforming themselves into liberal Democrats who are going to be ready to overthrow the state. Because the power of the propaganda machine is immense. The weight of social pressure and peer pressure in Russia is terrifying, and the state pushes it in schools with propaganda lessons and those are increasing in the aggression, shall we say, it pushes it on television. It pushes it through sort of semi-mandatory volunteer activities in youth groups. And so young people either go quiet and certainly they they might well hear stories about children being denounced and and children like Masha Moskalyova, the little, I think she's 12 year old who who drew an anti-war picture and her father's now, in jail and she's, I believe, going to live in an orphanage. Mm. There's a fear factor there about silencing dissenting voices, but also the creation of this much bigger bubble for children where the concept of even becoming, or the idea of even being one of the them as it were, being on the outside becomes incomprehensible to children. Millennials meanwhile, well millennials grew up in the 2000s, before this turned to a much more ideological form of government, before the the propaganda really started going 24/7, and they're disappointed by the way things are turning out, right? And that's why it's been we've seen so many millennials fleeing the country, those that are able to do so, right? And we see that figure of 700,000 people leaving after the uh, fall mobilization announcement and i'm not sure if that figure is accurate but it's certainly a large number Mm. however what we also have to remember is that the government is hitting its mobilization targets it did recruit the number of people it wanted to and the more people the more millennials that leave who are against the government or against the war for whatever reason whether they just don't want to die at the front or whether they're genuinely opposed to the regime's imperialism That's all good for the state in a certain way because it removes dissenting voices. It removes plurality of opinion. And that is what the state wants.
0: You mentioned Surkov earlier. He obviously played a huge role in creating all of this. But I mean, how much of it was actually a person masterminding it as opposed to an organic process that's been happening and accompanying the Putin regime? I mean, is that even a fair question?
1: It's certainly a very important question. And of course it's extremely hard to assess but what i would say is that while surakov was the composer handing out the melodies and the tunes he rapidly found a great many people who identified with the things that the government was saying and in the book i I discuss a few examples but the one, the one that really has stuck with me on a, on a human level is the story of this guy, Ivan Kandakov, who was, he's in his mid to late 30s now, something like that, I don't remember off the top of my head, comes from Arkhangelsk, grew up in the 1990s in this sort of far-flung northern, very much rusting post-Soviet city, came to Moscow in the early 2000s to study, and lived the dream, lived the fairy tale, got a PhD, works in aerospace engineering, great money, living the good life in Moscow, got to travel all over Europe. And yet something snapped for him around about 2012, 2013, maybe 2014, when Crimea was invaded. And he became one of these turbo patriots who saw that Russia was under threat from the West, from Democrats, from liberals, from homosexuals, and Nel Kumbakov is a sort of patriotic singer, one of, one of many grassroots social media stars and influencers on the Russian patriotic circuit. And he has a YouTube channel and a Telegram channel and a VK page and he releases songs and thousands of followers. He appears on national television, and regional television. He has a radio show. He had a show on the Sargrad television channel, which is this sort of uber orthodox patriotic channel. But he's well spoken and Western. He speaks great English. He's been abroad. He's well traveled. And listen, he is charming and charismatic. I can imagine that in another another life, me and Ivan could be really good friends. But he's just fallen down into this hole of patriotism where he is happily singing these songs and recreating the government's material for more and more followers and i found so many instances of similar characters including children who Mm -hmm. were just ready to sort of leap on board with this project and identified with the idea that russia is genuinely at a sort of point of existential crisis if it doesn't fight if it doesn't go on, on the attack it's going to be destroyed from without, by the West, or from within, by the homosexuals, by the ethnic minorities, by the so-called Satanists.
0: And there's really, really chilling detail in your book about the youth army and actual children um, who, who join this army, who learn to actually load Kalashnikovs and learn about fighting the enemy. And with the war in Ukraine has had a major recruitment drive. The youth army membership has exploded. I see obvious parallels with Hitler youth. Is that is that a fair comparison? I
1: hate making comparisons with the Nazis and with Hitler's Germany because it seems lazy to go to the most extreme metaphor that we have. Mm. But, in, in this case, I think there is a good parallel to be made. These children, and there are now 1.3 million members of the Youth Army, that has grown by 300,000 in 2022, and the Youth Army uh, officers, as they're known, that I spoke to while researching the book, basically said they can't keep up with demand. There are know there are too many people trying to sign up we don't have the space we don't have the uniforms we don't have this we don't have that right so this is not a fringe phenomenon and the government is putting big money behind it and wants i believe one in five school children to take part by i think 2026 i'd have to check the year don't don't anybody quote me on that but in the next few years Hmm. so this is a big deal and this is so important for the state because it is recreating children from the ground up it is preparing them for war and the organization's website explicitly says we intend to pipe boys into the army russia is a highly gendered society again those traditional values so-called traditional boys go into the army and girls are being prepared for sort of you know behind the lines activities they're going to be healthcare workers teachers lawyers that sort of thing. But they're still participating on behalf of the state and on in the state's wars, right? Everybody is being readied for this. And they are given courses in, and, and the firearms is like the sort of the glamorous, the eye-catching bit of it, right? That's the bit that we all see online on viral videos and think, wow, those are seven-year-olds with grenades. That's That's weird, right? That's shocking. Mm-hmm. But what I think is much more shocking is the educational programs that go with it, because the group explicitly aims to teach children what they call moral spiritual development. And in spiritual development, they have in mind teaching this messianic myth that Russia is under threat, that Russia must fight. Russia is always under threat. Russia will always have to fight. And that the world is going to be defined for them, and being a good Russian is going to be defined by potentially sacrificing themselves. Today, sacrificing their psychology in the way that I've talked about, breaking themselves apart and recreating themselves, but tomorrow they may have to go to war and die, right? Mm -hmm. And that is a huge change from the lessons that millennials, who are more likely to be mobilized or the government is attempting to mobilize today hugely different educational makeup and what's really insidious about the way that the youth army functions or has functioned for the last few years is in the digitization and gamification of the movement transforming it into something that is glamorous and fun that exists on social media where kids share with each other peer to peer these lessons, the violence that they're learning as a part of the youth army, and thus strip out the interference of parents who may be less willing to watch their kids grow up in this militarized way. That is something new. And again, the 24 seven accessibility of the rally of the material is a new phenomenon that we haven't really seen in You may not agree with me that I think that Russia is a fascist nation, but we haven't really seen it used very effectively in authoritarian nations before.
0: When you were doing the research for your book and speaking to all of these really young Russians um, about what they're experiencing, about about what they believe in, did you ever get the sense that this was almost like temporary madness, that they could be quite easily swayed away from 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 these beliefs i mean what kind of sense did you get that it was um that it was permanent that it was actually being made as part of part of their their psyche
1: of course we never know how the future is going to unfold but what we do know from the research about children and adolescents is that what people learn when they're young influences their political behavior, their opinions for a long, long time. And in stripping out the plurality of what academics would call identity pathways. And that is I associate with Russian with being orthodox, violent and masculine rather than Russian with being orthodox, peaceful, because that's a form of Christianity, probably a more uh, fair form of Christ Christianity. Peaceful and therefore Russia's role in the world should be different, right? Those are two different identity Mm -hmm. pathways. Russian children just aren't seeing these alternatives right now. They're being bubbled into the state's us versus them reality. And those that fall on the outside are ruthlessly bullied and attacked and made to feel guilty and shamed. However, I, I do think having talked to practitioners who've worked in post-conflict scenarios, who've talked about what happened post-1991, what happened in denazification after the Second World War, there is a possibility of influencing these young people away from this. And I, I personally think that we need to be acting now, while Russia is still open to the world in some respects, it is still easy to access social media networks to give different messages to children we need to be looking at ways to build out those different identity pathways for young russians so that they don't believe that violence is the only option
0: how do we do that from abroad
1: <laughs> so as i said russia remains relatively open digitally speaking we're never going to invade the country and occupy them in the way that we did after World War II, right? And that's really how denazification happened in, in as far as it did happen, and it happened very imperfectly. And Russia, as we all know, is trying to isolate itself digitally, It's, it's shutting off access to Facebook and Instagram and all sorts of other websites, thousands of websites that might threaten the state's narratives. Russians can use VPNs to access material from outside but Russians own sites the sites that remain accessible for us things like VK and VK which is another large social media network social media networks like TikTok which of course isn't Russian but is still accessible from within Russia we can go and be in those spaces those are the spaces that the government is using to promote its narratives to create its fantasy worlds its bubbles for children so we can be there creating bubbles back again and what we have is strength of truth and the strength of reality on our side but what we have to remember and this is the mistake that we are making time and again in trying to reach out to russians is that simply Countering the state's narratives will get an knee jerk reaction if we say the state is lying about the threat that the west poses the state is bad it is the Russian state that is killing people the people within the bubble that we're trying to reach will simply point to the fantasy the fairy tale that they're being sold and say well no I see how Russian soldiers are saving children in Ukraine not killing them you're the liars And so we can create messages, but it has to be messages that build on positivity. Messages that don't appear to come from the West and messages that don't simply try to dismantle reality, but create new ones. It's very hard to do, but it can be done. And we know that it's worked. It's worked with, for example, uh, you can look at the case of ISIS, uh, members of Al-Qaeda after 9-11, the ways in which it can be, it can be affected, are well documented, but it's gonna be it, easier the earlier we do it, the easier it will be.
0: I also wonder what role the economy and the the good life that you had earlier described plays in this. I mean, the Russian economy is is in a terrible situation due to sanctions, due to the war in Ukraine, due to all the investors pulling out, and I'm just wondering how this ideology can be maintained if if things are gonna perhaps return to the chaotic 90s, um, which everyone, everyone is so relieved to have escaped from. Do you think that that plays a big role or, it, or is it independent of that?
1: I think it's certainly a weak point in the government's strategy, because the Russian economy clearly is under a great deal of strain. But the answer is to go back to this overarching narrative of sacrifice and regeneration. The idea that the state, that Russia has to live through these periods of turmoil in order to regenerate itself, in order to recreate the world, in order to be at the vanguard of history. Well, this is the narrative. This is the myth of the fantasy from the 2000s. We had to live through the 1990s. And this Putin said in 2005, In that big speech where he said that the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest catastrophe of the 20th century, he also said, we had to live through the 1990s or the tragedy and chaos to gather the spiritual energies and the great sort of force that's driving us forward today. And so they will say once again, yes, we are dying today. Yes, we are suffering today but we are living through this period in order that we might be rebirthed anew. And those on the inside may well believe this, especially I think when the state begins to extrapolate the tawdry and, and failing conflict in Ukraine into a much bigger civilizational battle between Russia and a nefarious West that is looking to stab it in the back at every opportunity as it did during the
0: 90s that's going to be
1: an effective message
0: ian garner thank you very much thank you for having me this has been the lead a podcast by new lines magazine you can find ian on twitter at ir garner. this week's episode was produced by joshua martin and hosted by me amy ferris rockman for more like this Subscribe to The Lead on your favorite podcast app or visit our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you all for joining us.